There were five uh, Cobra meetings during the crucial period when yep. the virus was arriving in January and February. The Sunday Times said the Prime Minister did not attend any of them. Is that true? Uh, he didn't, but then he wouldn't. What we discovered was that on the 14th of March, when Boris had been advised to bring in a lockdown, there had been just 200,000 infections across Britain. But he then divided the load over, over that decision for a further nine days. And because of the exponential growth of the virus, which was doubling every three days, that allowed infections to reach 1.5 million. What was clear was that his own personal prevarication had been the key cause of, frankly, the majority of the deaths in that first wave. Welcome to JLab, a podcast brought to you by the Civic Journalism Lab at Newcastle University. And our guest for this episode is George Arbuthnot, award-winning investigative journalist at the Sunday Times and deputy editor of its Insight team, perhaps the most successful and certainly the best-known investigations team in British newspapers. Its long string of successes stretches back to uncovering the Profumo affair the thalidomide scandal, the discovery of Israel's secret nuclear weapons, and more recently, the FIFA cash-for-votes corruption. Since joining the Sunday Times, George, who graduated from nearby Durham and tells me he enjoyed many a good night out in Newcastle, has exposed a global doping scandal in athletics, human trafficking in the UK, and war crimes in Afghanistan by members of the SAS. In this episode, George explains more about failures of state his latest investigation and book with Insight editor Jonathan Calvert into the costly mistakes made by the UK government and its Prime Minister in the response to the pandemic. But first, I asked George to explain what he knew of the Insight team before he joined it. I knew a lot about it because, you know, it had broken so many amazing stories that we kind kind of grew up with. I think Cash for Questions, I think, in the early 90s was the first one that I was kind of con- vaguely conscious of. It was just absolutely, absolutely famous for, for doing fantastic investigative journalism. It's been going for, I think, more than 50 years. I think, I think it's the oldest investigative team in, the, in, in Britain. Um, it's been going the longest. And, you know, some of its work on the thalidomide scandal in the past and revealing Israel's nuclear secrets in the, in the 80s were all absolutely kind of landmark pieces of journalism. So when I was asked to join it in 2015, um, I was massively honoured, but it was also it was also quite kind of intimidating because you you got to try, try and live up to the um, history of the team. And uh, I think in the sort of Harold so Harold Evans days, who kind of uh, really championed the Insight team um, in sort of seven in the seventies, I think there were kind of up to sort of twenty people working at any one time. But when I joined it, we, there was just there was just two of us. So you do have to kind of. Uh, there are less resources to work with, although obviously a journalist's job these days is, is easier because you've got the um, the powers of the internet, etc., to to gather information. The editor of Insight, uh, Jonathan Calvert, has been in charge of it since the early 2000s. And I mean, he's, the reason he is, he's remained there is because of his, his track record in breaking, amazing track record of breaking scoops and doing award-winning journalism. Um, so when I came in in 2013, to become his deputy. It was, you know, he's an amazing person to learn from and, and to kind of act as a kind of mentor. So I feel very, very lucky in that. Are you able to conscript other reporters into your investigations from, from the newsroom? Absolutely, yes. So 
depending on the the type of story we're working on, uh, we'll often bring in kind of people with specialist knowledge to help us. And certainly in the pandemic, for example, we we drew on Andrew Gregory, who was our our health editor. And when we did these, we examined the origins of the virus in China. We worked with our Asia correspondent Philip Sherwell. So. Absolutely, yeah, we do. We, we, we kind of, on an ad hoc basis, pull people in to help us out. So what sort of stories are Sunday Times Insight stories? You know, what passes passes muster? I think it's probably almost the most crucial skill of being part of an investigation team is, is choose, choosing the right, the right subject. Because, you know, you're given the great privilege of being able to spend significant amounts of time working on one story. But if the story is not going to end up as a kind of major front page story, there's, you know, it's impossible to justify that, that kind of expense of time and resources. And what's often hard is you, is you never know how the story is going to end up. You know, you can start investigating something and you can end up two months down the line and you suddenly realise actually there's, there's not much there. It's a real skill of picking the right, picking the right topic and trying to sort of foresee what's going to work and, what, and what's not. I mean, we do probably have about four or five stories usually on the go at any one time and, and maybe two or three of them will actually work out but you have to have that kind of um, that churn of ideas to, to make sure that if, if, if you do 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 produce so I'm going to give you an example of the stories we've worked on since I've been on Insight we started off with, with the FIFA scandal and then we did the uh, doping scandal in sport so that kind of came out of that was the big, the big Russian doping scandal um, we got a big leak of every blood test result of every athlete in the world, which kicked that off. Um, so that was obviously a great property to get hold of, and I think we worked on that for about six months. Then more recently, we've done um, stories about the SAS uh, committing kind of executions against civilians in, in Afghanistan. And then much more recently, obviously in the last year, we've been focusing on the pandemic. And so the, 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 the kind of key thing is it needs to be a story that will make waves and has a kind of a national or international appeal but also exposes major, major wrongdoing um, and, and is in the public interest. So there's quite a few boxes you have to tick for us to, to really engage. There are kind of various different places our stories come from. We have a, a source might come to us with some information or we might get a leak of a, some, a big database of documents or data or we just look at an area which we think there may be a scandal and we will just start from scratch looking at that area and trying to cultivate sources to try and dig into it. And so we usually have a kind of four or five ideas on the go and then we just explore them all, speaking to people, examining what's already in the public domain and just trying to build up. And then, and then as, soon, as soon as we can, take, take a kind of view whether or not to discard it or, or, or to proceed. And it is, it's, I think that's where Jonathan's experience really comes into its own as he, he's, he's very good at assessing the merits of a story at an early stage and jettisoning uh, stories that aren't aren't going to pass muster. So, George, explain to me why Insight has this track record. I think, I mean, certainly on the undercover side, um, I think Insight probably has the kind of most developed skills in that area. Jonathan in particular has built that up over, I mean, he when he did the Cash for Questions story in the early 1990s, um, he was he was on the um, House of Commons terrace where he was posing as a business who wanted um, particular questions to be asked in Parliament and he was offering MPs cash basically in return for doing so and and they'd and they um, 
accepted that and as well, several MPs did, did accept that and that, that formed the kind of famous cash for questions scandal which which led to the principles of public life um, being established um, in the early 1990s which is still still enforced today and, and MPs are still measured against so you know he's been doing that kind of work for almost 30 years now and so um, certainly when I joined Insight I'd done a little bit of undercover work but certainly was it was a novice compared to him and so I've really it's been incredible learning from him that skill, and I, I don't. I, I'm pretty sure he's. He, I was. He, most people would accept that he's the finest proponent of it across the British British media, and and uh, that's allowed insight to, I think, get to stories and break stories that that other other teams haven't, um, because often you can kind of see that there's there is a there's a you can sense that there's a scandal happening, but getting a source to talk to you about it or trying to get documentation to support it is is pretty much impossible because the cabal of individuals who are responsible for the wrongdoing are, are just too tight, too tight lit, too savvy to allow you into it. And so but undercover work gives gives you that chance to to delve in. And um so I, I'd say that that was that was that's a kind of key advantage we've had. The other factor of it with the insight team is that quite a lot of other papers have multiple invested journalists, but they're all often kind of lone wolves um who are left to kind of bring in stories themselves and work on stories individually but we've always found and jonathan's found during his career is actually working as a close-knit team where you kind of share everything and you you talk every day you know for, for hours on end discussing stories having individual having having a you know two two, two brains on something um, and thrashing things out is is actually massively beneficial it's also just great for morale because it can be quite lonely being an investigative journalist, you know, working on a story by yourself for, for months on end of maybe the occasional chat with your editor. And often you can kind of, it's, it can be quite hard to see the wood from the trees uh, when you've got a kind of absolute thicket of information that you built up and you're trying to see your way through to what the actual story is. I think that Insight has been quite unique in that. and It's a real, it's a proper team. Um, and we kind of live together and die together and... You know, we know each other's families and we trust each other absolutely implicitly. So I think that that's been a big benefit. I mean, obviously, we it, it, all the skills that we have, you know, there's, there's nothing kind of absolutely, you know, unique about what we do. You know, all, all journalists essentially are investigative journalists to some extent. Um, but we just we just get to dive a lot deeper than others do because of, because of, because of the time we get. And it's also kind of story sense, you know, just understanding what. It's going to make you know they're coming. There are quite a few. There are some invested teams or journalists around the country who do spend a huge amount of time on stories, but they don't when they when they break them. Just they just the, the topics just aren't mainstream enough to really have that cut through. Um, and it, so I think that that's the that's the other key. Tell us a little bit about the origins of your failures of state investigation. Coronavirus has been the story of the last 12 more months. At what point did you and Jonathan decide this was also an insight story? Um, as the pandemic kind of struck in the spring of last year, you know, we, ha- we had a series of other investigations that we were working on, um, but it soon became clear that they were completely insignificant compared to, <laughs> compared to the pandemic. And um, so it became, it was, it was like tricky because you know, all our work was suddenly kind of rendered a fairly pointless not pointless, but but just uh, insignificant. And so we we circled back, and 
obviously every journalist in the country almost was working on the pandemic, so you had to try and come up with something that was original. And to be fair, it was, it was actually our, our new editor, Emma Tucker, uh, who asked us to take a look, sort of systemic look at what the government had been doing in January and February as the, the warnings of the virus were kind of ramping up and how, how, how they'd been preparing and particularly what Boris Johnson had been doing. I think when we got the request, it was just after the first lockdown in March, uh, at the end of so the end of March, and already it was clear that you know all our PPE supplies were chronically short, and healthcare workers were starting to die because they hadn't been pro- properly properly protected, and so they well, they wanted to see you know how I think that despite the government's kind of boast that we were the one of the best prepared countries in the world, uh, what have we actually done, and so. We then started building up an incredibly detailed timeline going day by day through January and February and tracking very closely what the Prime Minister had been doing. What came out of that research was was our first article, uh, which was called 38 Days That the Government Sleepwalked Into Disaster. And the key findings from that were that Boris Johnson had missed the first five COVID meetings on the virus, so so the the COBRA, Cobra is the national emergency committee for the that the prime minister normally chairs to handle the most grievous threats to to Britain. We also um, revealed that far from actually being able to bring in significant amounts of PPE in, in preparation for the pandemic, we'd actually been giving it away to China, and and it, it appears the reason may well have been because we were trying to negotiate a post Brexit trade deal with China, and that was what. Boris Johnson was prioritising rather than the um, pandemic, which he dismissed as an irrational panic um, at the beginning of February. Why was this an insight story and not a politics story? Because I guess the political reporters could maybe have pieced some of that together. Yeah, so I mean, the politics team could, could have done that, but they but they, they hadn't. And I think what the key, the key thing was we had the opportunity to kind of take take a step back and, and do a kind of more f- like a forensic look back, systematic look back through that period. Whereas what was happening with the media during that period was the politics scenes were doing their kind of daily their daily stories and, you know, it was just, just dictated by whatever was said, you know, by in Parliament or by the Prime Minister that day. And then you had the kind of health journalists um kind of doing again the kind of, you know, contemporaneous reports. But there was no nobody who was actually kind of and also obviously all the science journalists were also kind of reporting what SAGE were doing, but there was nobody who was actually looking back and putting it all together and trying to understand how the political decision-making had been informed by the science and then how, and then how that political decision-making had then impacted the health consequences on the NHS. So it was all completely disparate and there was no kind of... There was very little accountability being given to the government for the consequences of their decisions, but also analysing the actual... How, whether they were following the science as they were so fond of telling us they were and so that's that's what we what we focused on so that first article we did was five five and a half thousand words i think and it it became the most popular article that the the most most read online article at the times and sunday times is history um because because it, it for the first time it actually put put all those things together in a, in a kind of comprehensive narrative and people could actually re- recognise how poorly the government handled it. I think they kind of had a sense of it because they could see that we'd locked down later than all the other 
European countries, and they were, everyone was kind of trying to understand why why the government was telling us that Britain was kind of a special case. But we actually kind of set it out with with the evidence, and also secured kind of whistleblowers from the Sage Scientific Committee, um, in particular, who were really angry that the government had not been following their recommendations or the science, and tens of thousands of people were had died unnecessarily. Uh, as a result. What were the challenges in getting some of that information, George? Speaking to the sage scientists was challenging because, you know, these, these guys were, before the pandemic, you know, were relatively obscure academics, a lot of, a lot of them, who, you know, just weren't used to the media, the media glare. And I think felt, felt quite, you know, honoured to be part of the sage, the sage committee and were worried that if they spoke out to the media would might they might jeopardize their position on it and they might you know upset um, the government ministers etc but so it was challenging getting persuading them to speak to us but it became easier as, as the year went on because their anger at the government's inaction despite their warnings intensified because because the consequences were, were so dire um so that was one challenge the, the other great challenge actually was trying to get inside the hospitals because the NHS hierarchy in the government had had really brought the shutters down as best they could. And so they, they issued a diktat saying that nobody could speak out, none of the NHS staff could speak to the press without permission from the, uh, the top of the NHS. And unsurprisingly, that wasn't, <laughs> wasn't very freely given. And so, again, it was trying to persuade doctors that even if they couldn't speak on the record because, because their jobs might be on the line, if they could off the record, just give, be brave enough to give us give us a, a true reflection of what was happening, and so that, that luckily we did manage to get that. Again, that that took significant amount of time, and I think again that put us in a fairly unique position in that we had the we had the resources and effort and time to to commit to to achieving that. What would you say were the key pieces of information that you discovered that made you think, yes, now we have not only an investigation, but we've also got a book. Uh, you know, we've, we've got several key revelations that we didn't know before. We were approached by HarperCollins to write a book after our first article about the NIST Five Cobra meetings. And our second article that we did was the th- about th- the three weeks up to the first lockdown. And the key point of that was that we managed to get hold of data from Oxford University and Imperial College London, which showed the estimates of the number of infections that had been spreading through the UK each day during that period. And what we discovered was that on the 14th of March, when Boris had been advised to bring in a lockdown, there had been just 200,000 infections across Britain. But he then dividend delayed over, over that decision. Uh, for a further nine days. And because of the exponential growth of the virus, which was doubling every three days, that allowed infections to reach uh, reach 1.5 million. So what was clear was that his, his own personal prevarication had been the key cause of, frankly, the majority of the deaths in that, fir- in, in that first wave. And so when we first started writing the book, we, we assumed that that enormous mistake, which led us to having the most deaths in Europe during the first wave, but also forced us to have the longest lockdown because it took longer to bring infection, such a high level of infections back under control and therefore caused more damage to our economy. 
Um, so we were left in the worst of all worlds. We assumed that the book would be about that one late lockdown because we could not conceive that he would make the same mistake a second time. But remarkably, by the end, of, by the end of beginning of January, we we were able to write about three late lockdowns. He made the mistake, same mistake three times. At that point, we 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 felt like we had a really important, substantive book because the mistake was so egregious. And actually, the and the actual kind of holding to account for that decision amongst the British press, we we felt had had not been had not been achieved properly at all. And and the reporting around that, the kind of the day to day reporting, it could really kind of missed the significance of of, of the um, appalling cost of that error. You know, I'm sure that there there are allegiances. You know, Boris has Boris has supporters in in the media, but I think ultimately it, to to build up to build up a compelling case that shows that it it takes, you know, having the time to speak to get to all the sage scientists, going through all the data from. Uh, from the infection estimates, but also, I mean, it, t- it took us about two months to persuade the one of the key the key government group that gathers all the NHS data, which um, allows us to, sh- to to show that despite the government's claims that everybody got the care they needed in that first wave, actually the number of infections that Boris Johnson allowed to spread had meant that people did not get the care they need, and there was a kind of systemic rationing of care where. The elderly people with um, comorbidities and also people who are frail were routinely uh, excluded from intensive care, even though they would have benefited from it if if they'd received it. And then the same, the same occurred as also with people being brought into hospital. You know, there were there were twenty about twenty five thousand excess deaths in people's homes during that first wave, and. Thousands of those deaths were being caused by the fact that hospitals just did not have the capacity to take them in, and so they, and so they discouraged people from care homes, for example, being brought into hospital even if they were dying from the virus, and so they were left to die in their own beds. And for us to be able to prove that, which is obviously an incendiary allegation, took months, months of work. And so I think I think sadly it's it's a real symptom of the um, the kind of uh, resource resource starved. Um, newsrooms and investigation teams around the country. And not wishing to oversimplify the message of your work, George, but does it does it essentially boil down to the personality of our Prime Minister? That, that's certainly, certainly our conclusion. I mean, you only have to look at countries around the world to see that lead, you know, the, the timing of lockdowns was the most, by far the most critical, important factor in deciding how how many deaths a country suffered, but also how much economic damage they suffered. You can, you can look at Australasia, East Asia, Scandinavia, you know, in, in Europe. All those all those countries' leaders recognised quickly, and took this took this took the threat seriously, and and looked around the world at what was working, and, and saw that, for example, in Wuhan. They'd brought in a lockdown and they'd managed to not only quell the, the virus, but also it allowed them to, to open up again, open up society again and, and people to begin to, the economy to begin to operate effectively. And they, and they copied that. And we, we quote a stat in the book where on New Year's Day, there were more deaths in Britain in an hour than there was in the entire, across the entire pandemic in Australia. And yeah, they've suffered far less 
far fewer deaths, but also they've 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 been pretty much opened up for almost a year now. Um, yeah, they they haven't been living under lockdown, repeated lockdowns. So they they've had the best of all worlds, and that's purely because they they locked down early, got the virus down to unbelievably low levels. And then that allowed them to be able to quell the outbreak with track and trace and local restrictions. Whereas we've never, ever achieved that. And that's because Boris Johnson didn't have the patience in the summer to to um, drive infections down to, to manageable levels, but also was completely reckless in, in in opening up again. And he's made that mistake. He made that mistake again for a second time in January with with truly appalling consequences. People say to, have said to us, you know, do, do you think a book came out too early? Um, because with the pandemic still going on, but I wish we'd written the book, be able to get the book out in the summer last year, because the motivation for you know the bereaved families talking, speaking to us, the doctors speaking to us, despite the risk of their jobs, the scientists speaking to us, is because they are so exasperated that the that the government has continued to make the same mistake three times, and has, so many people have died pointlessly, and so. Our message, the the point of the book, the central point of the book is is to is to show how it just you know if 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 you drive infections down to very low levels and the and the, and the vaccination program has been fantastic and and that would actually help us with that, then you you can then open up society safely without risking you know tens of thousands of deaths and and so you you do end up in in the, in the best of, best of both worlds now. Boris does seem to be taking so does seem to have learned his lesson to some degree and and you know he is being more cautious it's apparently more cautious this time but you know his his whole talk about kind of irreversible opening up and the sort of cavalier nature of of keeping the border of of, of the border checks um with all these new variants which seem to be able to significantly undermine the vaccination program just feels like he's making the same mistake again. So we're hoping that the book will provide, you know, put some pressure on on the government to to, to learn those mistakes, because it, because no story I've ever worked on in my life has created such an impact in this country. You know, probably probably for my entire life, there've been there's no story where um, the consequences um, of government action have such profound fallout for, for for this country and um certainly having to tell my family that from what I, from what i'm hearing for the doctors despite what the government is saying if you catch this virus in, in in the next few months i cannot I, i'm pretty sure that you know that there's a real risk that you will not get the care you need and that's an extraordinary position for the for a developed country to be in but it's happened three times in the, in the last year <laughs> <laughs>